Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And joining me for today's show is Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you? Oh, I'm, you know, considering the fact there's two days, two hours, 37 minutes and 15 seconds until the election, I'm doing great. And listeners, I want to tell you that my brain is literally fried by that number that you just said, Luke. I think my brain has completely fallen apart um, as we get close to the election, as I have election anxiety, and as I try to figure out what we are going to talk about on this show today. Listeners, to fill you in, this is our, our second time trying to record this episode because I have had such a hard time wrapping my mind around what the Republican strategy is to win this race in Georgia, that we literally couldn't even have a conversation about it the first time. And so I'm about to turn this show over to Luke, who is going to guide this conversation for you while I try to figure out how lost I've gotten in my bubble. But Luke is going to guide us through a conversation that is uh, our final words on the 2020 race in Georgia. And to me, a central strategic, but ultimately very confusing question about why Republicans think they have a winning strategy in this state for this election. Luke, take the microphone from me, please. All right. I am yanking the mic away. You know, the most 2020 thing possible. Luke Boggs hosting a show and having to be the guying principal. Uh, so, yeah. So what are Republicans doing? Like, why? Like, how do they think they're going to win this race? If you're listening to this, it's kind of unquestionable, you know, I am currently working on a state house campaign running against Republicans. And so I am obviously in an adversarial footing to a lot of their messaging. But I think I am very deeply immersed in it because of that. And I think I can articulate it pretty well. And um, hopefully you will think the same. So let's start statewide and then we can go down to the local races. So statewide, the Republicans messaging makes a lot more sense and they basically are following the trump playbook to a t the virus is not real or if it is real it's not a problem but is it real i don't know the real things that matter though are the democrats are radical socialists who are terrifying who are going to do scary things to you and wasn't it great before the virus i think so and i know you think so vote for the gop now obviously your first thought if you're listening to a podcast is that seems like a really bad message for a lot of people uh, who are having a hard time in the virus or have lost their job or, you know, even if it you haven't lost your job, your life is just way more inconvenient. You're having to try to teach your kids at home, etc., etc. This message is not for you. It's not for people in the suburbs. It's for rural Georgians. I live on a street that maybe it takes me three minutes to drive from like the turn to the turn where the dirt road where my house is. I pass like eight Trump signs and one giant Confederate flag, zero American flags. Um, I, I know what Trump country is like. I grew up in Trump country. I currently live in Trump country. And like, this is who it's for. This is why Donald Trump went to Macon. Like he didn't go to Atlanta. He went to Macon because they're trying to get those people out. This is why he's going to Rome. They're trying to get that side of Georgia's turnout to just be astronomically high. And to be fair, like that is actually not a terrible statewide strategy. Like there's a lot of people in rural Georgia. Sure, there's a ton of people in Atlanta and in the Atlanta suburbs, but like there's a lot of people there. And they really think that how they win this race is they maximize that turnout 
all the way up. And then they scare the crap out of enough people in the suburbs that they buy into the very Trumpian argument that the only way someone could actually oppose my agenda is that they are a rioter, radical, socialist, crazy person. And that is the only person who could not agree with me, Donald Trump slash David Perdue slash name your Republican. So the thing that like caused an entire breakdown of our show is not that this argument exists and that this is the argument that they're making, is that Kyle could not believe that this was legitimately what the Republican Party was campaigning on. And I, I think there was just a mental block that you had, Kyle. So, like, let's talk about that for a minute, because I think this actually is incredibly valuable for both discussing what's happening on the local level with state house races and state senate races, but also the future of the Georgia political climate based off of the fact that this is what's happening. So the place I will start is just like the discussion we had that we had to completely destroy because it was incomprehensible <laughs> even to us was that I was trying to convince you that this was actually the argument that they were running on in the suburbs and they think it will work. So like, why is that so hard for you to believe? That is what broke my brain. Um, what I was trying to argue was that I accept that they've run this strategy with a primary strategic objective of turning up turnout in, in rural Georgia and trying to offset losses in the suburbs there. To me, that signals that they have given up on much of the suburbs. This is not a message, in my view, that is designed to appeal to suburban voters, particularly the voters who make up a growing share of the electorate, people who are relatively new to Georgia, people who are less religious, people who are more politically moderate. And most importantly to me, the thing that really sort of breaks my brain about this strategy is the people, which I would imagine is probably most of suburban voters, the people who are concerned about the pandemic and about the real life implications that the pandemic has had for them, that they can't be comfortable sending their kids to school, that they can't go to the grocery store without wearing a mask. The What does not line up in my brain is that Republicans believe they have a winning strategy that says they can ignore that entire life experience of suburban people in 2020 and win on the fact that they're just going to argue that John Ossoff or Joe Biden or Democratic statehouse candidate in your area is a terrorist, is a member of Antifa, is a Chinese communist, is whatever, whatever you want to say that they, that, that there is that there are real serious people that go to work dressed up every single day and say this is a winning strategy in the suburbs we are going to execute it and we are going to reelect Donald Trump we're going to reelect David Perdue we're going to hold on to the state house in republican hands and this is going to work that just breaks my brain that you you brought you know you argued back at me that there are real serious people that think that is going to work and i just don't get that I don't get it. So, like, I, I'm going to be fair. I don't know if they actually think it's going to work, but as someone on a campaign, I've worked on a lot of campaigns, I try to be very data-driven in the campaigns I'm a part of, and I know, like, successful people, successful campaigners, 
usually are. And like one thing I will say about David Perdue in 2014, I did, you know, I was not on the Purdue campaign, but I feel like they were, they ran a very smart campaign that talked really effectively to Republican voters and just Georgia voters in general, uh, because like nobody knew who the hell he was. And he entered a very contested, very big primary with a bunch of people who were very well known in Georgia politics. And he kicked all their asses, like just to be blunt, like he did a very good job. That was an incredibly well run campaign, I, I thought. Um, you know, again, I have a lot of arguments about it and things that would make me uncomfortable, uh, for, for, uh, a lot of the arguments he made, but like, as far as like, will this work a plus, um, they're not doing that this time. And I, I think it's because they don't have any other options. Like, I, I think like, let's, let's assume what I imagine is true, which is they have looked at polls. They have conducted a bunch of polls and tried to find a message and what they have probably found is that the pandemic is a major concern for people and that they really hate the Republican position on it, which is we give up the pandemic one and we're not going to control it. And it's up to you, dear listener, dear individual Georgian, to figure it out for yourself because we're not going to help you. They figured out that that's a really bad message. And so they're not talking about that. And when everyone is screaming, do something about the pandemic and your position is, I'm not going to do anything about the pandemic. You don't say that. So the, what the problem then becomes is your opposition party is saying, I'm going to do things about the pandemic. And so the only way that you can beat that party when you refuse to adopt the position of doing something about the pandemic is to then make everyone scared of what your opponent will do if they win. That is why on the campaign I'm working on, uh, they have not presented a positive message beyond like platitudes of I support education. I want to bring jobs to the community. I want better, cheaper health care. I don't kill puppies. Like that is the positive message. And the negative message is my opponent is with the rioters. My opponent wants to defund police. My opponent wants to ban plastic bags. That last one is real. Like that is their campaign. That's what they're spending money on. And you know, specifically in, in the race I'm working on, our opponent also, you know, made an ad. They spent a bunch of money on that ad. They spent $75,000 putting it on cable. And that ad is basically, boy, that pandemic is inconvenient. Man, my family's annoying to be around. I wish we could go back to work and not have to wear a mask all the time, which is insane coming from someone who got COVID. <laughs> like that is a strange, strange argument to make. Uh, but that's the argument they're making. It's a strange argument also from someone who is an incumbent member of the state house and has the ability to do something about it. But well, okay. So I think this is a great place to, uh, you know, come, come back to you, Kyle Long is in this environment where you, the leader of your party, both on a statewide level and in Brian Kemp and a national level, Donald Trump, vacillate between the virus is not real slash not a problem to it's a problem but we can't do anything about it because government can't do anything ever uh like what you do what you run on <laughs> i mean i don't run in this party um, well of course but like you 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 think there is someone doing what they should be doing which is representative chuck s frustration right so like like he why do you think this is a better argument for them to be running on than than the argument I just laid out. I think it's an argument that is reflective of reality, that people are 
very concerned about the pandemic and that they want to see people being active doing something about it. And I, I think it's notable that Chuck Abstration, Republican from Decula in the state house, he has a Democratic challenger in Nikita Hemingway. He used a prominent media opportunity when he was on Political Rewind at Georgia Public Broadcasting earlier in the summer to lay out a more proactive agenda on COVID that isn't necessarily partisan, but I think broadly fits into the Republican messaging of yesteryear of like 2010, 2012, that's like, we do care about education and we care about business growth in Georgia. And his ideas were to improve contact tracing and testing and all of that, which everybody says we need. Then to give schools the funding that they need to enable students to learn in smaller environments, in pods, in environments that at the end of the day are supposed to be safer in a world where we have to deal with COVID, and to create a business certification system that allows a business to certify that they are doing just about everything they can do to protect you as a customer when you shop with them, patronize their business, whatever, to have this standardized certification as a way of improving confidence among consumers that they can do at least some of the normal things in their life, like shop, and feel like they're being protected from COVID. And at a minimum, you know, you can, we could hash out the the details of these policies or whatever. At a minimum, what this comes down to is a proactive agenda where a Republican candidate says, I am going to do more about COVID. And the implicit message in that is because we are not doing enough. And to me, well, that's the problem. Yeah, (laughs) that's where I would stop you is because if you say we're not doing enough right now on COVID, it means that we could do something about COVID and the Republican Party's message is we can't do anything about it. That's why we don't talk about it because we can't do anything about it. And if you start doing some things about it, then that means you could do more things about it. And that opens up to the Democratic complaint about the current leadership in Georgia is that there's something that could be done about COVID because Brian Kemp's position is you, individual human being Georgian, are responsible for the pandemic, not me, Brian Kemp, governor, who, by the way, he's quarantining right now because he probably has COVID. <laughs> um, because we should say, we should clarify, he. He was exposed to Congressman Drew Ferguson at an event. Uh, It was actually the counter event to when Joe Biden was in Warm Springs, Georgia, giving a speech. Uh, Both Drew Ferguson and Brian Kemp spoke at this this counter programming event. Drew Ferguson tested positive and Brian Kemp is quarantining under CDC guidelines because he was exposed to somebody who ultimately tested positive. And as of this recording, I have not heard anything about a negative or positive test about Brian Kemp. Um, and obviously, uh, I hope that this scare will produce better results from him. But I don't think it will, because they genuinely think they can't do anything about it. And anyone who thinks they should is wrong. And so if that is the party line, which it is then you can't talk about COVID because if you do, you're acknowledging the fact that there's something you should be doing. And so I think that is what's breaking your, your, your mind uh, down. And, and, you know, just as a, like a final piece of thought on this for me, the proof 
that this racial tension politics is the only thing they've got left in their quiver is just the fact that like people like Jan Jones, who, you know, if listeners don't know who she is, she is very high up in the state house leadership. A lot of people think she will be the first female house speaker of Georgia if David Ralston ever stops being house speaker. Um, and like you would not campaign on you move to North Fulton for a reason if you did not think that was your winging strategy. Um, now that is definitely the most dog whistly of the you know, racial bullhorns that are out there uh, in most of these races. Um, but that is what they have because as far as a positive agenda, the only other issue I've seen bring up, brought up is the boy, oh boy, we solved the adoption foster care system in Georgia and we are fighting sex trafficking, which like those are great. And I'm very happy <laughs> that they did those things, uh, but they pale in comparison to uh, what is going on in real people's lives. And that is why I think Kyle's brain melted when we tried to talk about it. And I had to convince him that they're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on this message that probably won't work. And, or at least we strongly feel it won't work. We'll find out on Tuesday or Wednesday. Georgia counts fast. So hopefully Tuesday. Um, on, on a similar note though, <laughs> Uh, completely coincidentally joe biden has been spending a lot of time in georgia recently and his campaign as well uh and you know on sunday the day we're talking kamala harris uh was uh in georgia uh, campaigning biden as you mentioned earlier kyle was in uh, warm springs and on monday the former president barack obama will be here and i mean what what do you you make of this kyle like the fact that georgia in this closing you know days like this is where at least i feel like the 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 laser focus has been on for both campaigns because trump is here kamala is here uh you know biden had been here very recently and barack obama's gonna be here like those are not your like michael bennett's god bless michael bennett but like those are the the people so like why are they here yeah that's the a team well i i think you could take this at a couple of different levels i think at the presidential level the strategic objective for Joe Biden in being here and having his top uh, campaign surrogates here is to really complicate Trump's path to 270. If Trump feels as though this state is in play and he needs to spend resources and time here, um, that's resources and time that he's not spending in Pennsylvania or Wisconsin or Michigan. Um, that's also resources and time that he is not spending or spending in in less of a total in, in Florida, in North Carolina, in Arizona. And so even if Biden does not ultimately win this state, if, if, if Trump can hold on to it, it just, it, it continues to put Trump's campaign on defense, making them worried that they won't hold the Sunbelt states that they need to hold when you look at the polling in in the Rust Belt states and in swing states up there, and, and it, you know, with the exception of Pennsylvania, it looks very bad for Donald Trump. I think the other piece of it to sort of bring in the state and local context, and in, in this I'm stealing from you from our first recording, um, is that the foundation has been laid by all of the work done to register voters after 2016 in the lead up to the 2018 governor's race. The fact that we have competitive races for the state house and the opportunity for Democrats to flip the state house, and the fact that there are two competitive U.S. Senate seats in this state means that time spent in Georgia 
by the upper echelons of the Democratic Party, including the presidential candidate, his VP nominee, and all of the top surrogates, that time, I think, is more valuable than a similar amount of time being spent in Texas or in Iowa or in Ohio. Like, you get a lot of bang for your buck in Georgia because it's possible that if Democrats are successful here, it has ramifications not just for almost entirely blocking Trump's path to 270. It has ramifications for the U.S. Senate control, and it has ramifications for, regardless of the outcome, Georgia is a state that is becoming more competitive for Democrats and is one that is more important to Democratic prospects across the country. If you flip Georgia's state house, and if you get a hand in redistricting, particularly in the 6th and 7th district and in the state legislature, that's also a big prize that's on the table here. So I think it's a confluence of, of a lot of things um, that makes Georgia just a really valuable place to be. And Well, <clears throat> I always have thought that Georgia is a valuable place to be. Uh, so that's why I still live here. But um, the, the thing I, I think about hearing that and going back to our previous discussion uh, was like in 08 when the Obama campaign put some late money in Georgia it was really like a running up the score uh, type thing. I don't think they explained it that way, but that's definitely what it felt like uh, that they thought, well, if we could flip Georgia, why not? It'd be fun. And, and part of the reason I think it wasn't on their map earlier is that just frankly, the Democrat Party in Georgia had atrophied both in the official organization, but also the candidates and quality of people running for office in Georgia. And I mean, really up until 2018, you could not have paid someone to run for state house and state senate in this state, you could not have guaranteed them to win. It, like people just wouldn't do it. Um, and I, I tried, and there's a seat, the two seats in the Athens area, which are now in very hotly contested races. Like I tried to get people to run for those for for years, and no one would ever do it, despite me thinking that they had a chance to win, and a lot of other people thinking they did. And, and the thing about it is that there there's just been this progression since really 16, I think of you know hillary runs doesn't put much in georgia at all maybe almost nothing in georgia especially comparatively and she does really well here again comparatively i mean it was closer than ohio a state that she heavily contested and then ossoff runs for the congressional seat and tons of money pours in he almost wins it but doesn't quite get there but it, it woke a lot of people up to the fact that georgia is possible like a lot of you know crazy party hacks like me knew it was but the larger georgia population really didn't and then you know by abrams running like there's a lot of insanely qualified really great candidates running trying to win in the state and really has revitalized the democratic party in an amazingly quick time I mean, abrams has done incredible job uh in, in her race and ever since and there's been a lot of work done by fair fight and other organizations she's made to make georgia a viable competitive state and i am so happy to see it because the thing that was so demoralizing to me was the fact there was just so much potential here and no one really saw it and i think uh what i'm grateful for this time is that it, it peaked at the right moment that georgia had this slow, steady uptick of engagement and volunteer work peak at the moment where there's just this, like, I mean, deluxe special. Like, McDonald's would not offer this many things in one meal, it, you know, in the equivalent of how great of a deal it is. Because for any campaign, a presidential campaign, statewide campaign, 
the investment you get in the metro Atlanta area is insane. There are two congressional seats up, there are two Senate seats up, and a ton of state house and state Senate seats. And it just does not take that much to fly into Atlanta doing an event and then leave for, you know, Biden and uh, Harris. And I'm so happy to see that they're doing that. And I really hope that this is proof positive that Georgia is worth investing in. And there are some really great things that can happen here. And that if uh, we just keep pushing for it, it can. And so the the place I would I would move to now is I think what is the the culmination of of both of these true things we've been talking about, which is not only are Democrats more energized and organized than they've ever been, but I think they're finding the Republican Party at a particularly weak time. And I think the best illustration of that is John Ossoff's campaign. So th- this is our second topic, because uh, I'm great at transitions. And the thing I want to start with with this race is actually going back to Purdue's 2014 race. So in 2014, David Purdue was the cousin of a governor, and that was and no one knew who he was. Like he was not a party figure at all. And there was a second primary on the Republican side that featured a lot of very prominent, well-known Republican congressmen and lots of other weird figures. I mean, you know, to be blunt, he just kicked their asses, right? And it was it was surprising to me and surprising to a lot of people. And I think it really was just because he ran a very smart campaign that keyed into the Republican primary and where the Georgia electorate was back in 2014. And he's really not doing that this time. I feel this is the same kind of thing that's like baffling you, Kyle, is that Purdue really has himself in this bind where the thing that people care the most about right now, taking COVID off the table, like, is healthcare still, even without COVID. So you combine it with COVID, it's really hard for him. And so the the principal campaign he's been running is lying that he supports pre-existing conditions, where literally every single opportunity he's had to get rid of that protection by getting rid of the Affordable Care Act without having a plan to replace it, he has taken, and he's eagerly taking it and giggly taking it. But despite that, like he actively is lying on TV, spending millions of dollars lying about him protecting pre-existing conditions. And the reason I'm so hard on that is because that is literally the only positive policy plank that David Perdue offers is basically, and this is what Zad say, we've played it on this program, which is like only a lying idiot fool would say, I don't support pre-existing conditions because of course I do. Um, that's all he's got. And what the principal thing of his campaign has been is flailing around wildly, very similar to Donald Trump, trying to find something that will effectively defeat his opponent and like some attack that will stick on his opponent, John Ossoff. And he has failed to do that. And I think there's no better illustration of how that has failed than John Ossoff himself just highlighting it. So this is uh, John Ossoff in the recent debate that they had uh, talking about Purdue's attempts to attack him. This is so beneath the office of a U.S. senator. You've continued to demean yourself throughout this campaign with your conduct. First, you were lengthening my nose in attack ads to remind everybody that I'm Jewish. Then when that didn't work, you started calling me some kind of Islamic terrorist. And then when that didn't work, you started calling me a Chinese communist. It's ridiculous. And you shouldn't do everything that your handlers in Washington tell you to, because you'll lose your soul along the way, Senator. 
What the people of Georgia deserve is a serious discussion of economic relief for Georgia families and how we're going to protect coverage for pre-existing conditions. Thank you for your time. So what do you make of this dynamic, Kyle, that John Ossoff is like not an unknown figure. He ran for Congress. He, he ran a very high-profile, very competitive race. David Perdue had time to prepare an argument against him. And this is really all he's got. And I, I just, what do you, what do you make of that? I mean, this is the other place where I continue to be dumbfounded that, that David Perdue believes this is the winning message. So, I mean, it, it's tough to figure out. I, I think to me, what I took away from that debate from this moment and, and from the conduct of that debate generally is that this argument from Purdue against Ossoff felt very weak. And I thought that John Ossoff did a very effective job of almost narrating David Purdue's arguments over and over again. He, you know, he sort of laid out these attack ads and put them in the context of David Purdue says this because he can't say anything else. And the thing that is really rises to the level of what you need in a U.S. Senator is a debate on these important issues. And then he also brought in the the almost Marco Rubio-esque uh, over and over again repetition of David Perdue saying John Ossoff is a, has a radical socialist agenda. And John Ossoff jumped in front of that and said, he only says this because he can't say anything else. And so John Ossoff, I think, did did two things really well in this debate. He set that framing around everything that David Perdue was going to say to demonstrate that David Perdue does not have a positive message, does not have a realistic plan to deal with the pandemic. And then he added to that constant repetitions of here is a popular thing that I, John Ossoff, support, like protecting pre-existing conditions or uh, expanding the Pell Grant program. David Perdue does not support those things. And the reason he does not support those things is because he is in Washington working for his donors and not working for you. And that is the foundation of his sort of anti-corruption message. And I was impressed by how cleanly John Ossoff was able to get hit after hit off on Perdue on those two basic points and David Perdue, to me, at least seemed to have no answer to that. Like, David Perdue... I mean, he doesn't have an answer. That's why he's not coming to the next debate and that his closing ag is John Ossoff has a radical socialist agenda. Yeah. <laughs> like, I just saw it today, right before we recorded the program. I was like, oh, look, it's David Perdue. Oh, wow, that's all he has to say. Okay, cool. Well, and the thing I think... I think this is why it's so hard for me to understand is I am just shocked by how cleanly it appears Democrats have the superior argument and the superior position in that race. And that's why you shared this clip with me earlier. John Ossoff appears almost celebratory in his reaction to David Perdue deciding to skip the final debate. Let's, let's listen to what he told an audience of supporters um, when this news came out that David Perdue would not be debating John Ossoff one last time before this election. So you know what I just learned about 10 minutes ago, y'all? See, we had another debate scheduled for Sunday. We had a 
another debate scheduled for Sunday. Turns out, Senator Perdue's not coming anymore. Senator Perdue doesn't want to answer any more questions. Because, see, Senator Perdue feels entitled to this Senate seat. But this is not David Perdue's seat. This is the people's Senate seat. Does not sound like a guy who thinks he's going to lose. No, it doesn't. And to me, Luke, like that last line, like, you know, Purdue thinks he's entitled to this seat, but it's not his. It's the people's seat. Like, that's the sort of like typically sort of like this like cheap, benign political statement. But I think it perfectly exemplifies the dynamic in this race that David Purdue, by adopting the strategy of I'm just going to recite my talking points that he's a radical, that he has a radical socialist agenda and he's a terrorist and a Chinese communist and whatever. And I'm just going to ignore the reality that most people are living in. When he has taken that position, these sort of lines that would typically be like cheap political lines, I think actually do a great job of describing what is going on because David Perdue just to me in this debate, he just did not feel like he was engaged in this race and in the same reality that the rest of us are living in. Yeah. I don't know what it was about the 2014 class of Republican freshman senators. Cause I, I feel like this is really true of Joni Ernst as well. There were a lot of folks who ran that year that really feel like one trick ponies to me. Like they had this one argument that was right for that right moment. And they're just tired now. I mean, I think this is probably just like, to be honest, the cost of having your entire political career be consumed by Donald Trump and having to support Donald Trump. And you don't have like any outside experience of like, Oh, you remember when Reagan was president? That was easy. (laughs) That was fun. (laughs) Like they just don't have that. Like as, as a politician, right? Like they're both older. They remember Reagan, but like they just weren't, they weren't in office then. And I think, especially speaking for Purdue, he's just tired. Like, I don't know why, like, you know, I mean, he's, he's just, he just is tired to me because I agree. It just does not feel like he's putting in a lot of effort because again, like I saw Purdue in 14. I mean, he was good. Like he was good on the stump. He was smart. He had great comebacks. Like he was like, he was, he was scrappy. He liked to get in fights. Like I would think he would enjoy this based on how he acted in 14 And it's just, he's not having fun. And, you know, I have a friend who has a rule that, like, whoever's having more fun wins in in politics and campaigns. And I genuinely think that's true. And, I mean, based on that, like, Ossoff should win. And I'm not going to say Ossoff is going to win because I've been disappointed too many times by the state of Georgia. But this is, it just feels like this is not a great closing argument for anyone because I don't know what it is that make people think that canceling a debate or refusing to show up to one is a good idea. But it really speaks to a larger structural argument issue rather than like your debating ability. Because the reason why Purdue canceled the debate is because he knows he would get his ass handed to him and that like John Ossoff would make him look like a fool and that, he is a fool and he's campaigning like a fool and that John Ossoff would raise a bunch of money and Purdue would just look stupid. And like, why would you do that? But I think the bigger question is like, 
Why have you allowed your campaign to get to a position that you can't even talk to your opponent for 90 minutes without making yourself look like an idiot? One thing that's kind of come to mind for me as, as we've now tried to have this conversation twice is engaging in this debate for Purdue really doesn't do much for his electoral chances. I think it actively hurts him. <laughs> yeah, I think it actively hurts him. And so you take the hit on this bad headlining and give the give the Ossoff campaign the opportunity to have this like triumphant statement. But then you just hope that all of this misinformation that you've thrown out there gets circulated on Facebook, gets circulated among conservative activists, and and that becomes the thing that some key amount of voters see, and that sort of becomes your path to victory. Like, given the reality, unless David Perdue was going to break with the president and make a more proactive argument, we need to do more on COVID, we need to do more to help people who are hurting right now, um, and make that argument in a way that is critical of the president and of his own party and not just of Democrats holding up the process, because he did say he did, you know, repeatedly try to blame all this on Democrats and say it's all their fault. But like, when Republicans are in control, that just doesn't work. If he's not willing to break with the president and make that kind of proactive argument, then this is this venue is just a loss for him. Yeah, because the, the thing that I'm feeling happened here, I, I really hope someone leaks this just because I'm, I'm personally fascinated. So I'm in Georgia. I'm in Oglethorpe County. I'm a white guy. So David Perdue's targeting people probably thought I am someone they could get. And so for that reason, my household received an astronomical amount of mail about John Ossoff making some documentaries in which Al Jazeera bought from him. Now, obviously, that is not how they presented it. They basically presented it as John Ossoff is a terrorist. Um, and my my firm guess is that they conducted some polls when they realized that they were in trouble and that they were not going to be able to beat John Ossoff just by saying, we'll cut taxes and not do anything on the pandemic, don't worry. Uh, that they, they tested, what if we say John Ossoff is a terrorist? And they probably got really great numbers back that that would hurt him. And so they put a bunch of money into that argument. And then time kept going on. They kept spending money on that argument and it didn't work. And I think it didn't work is because the reason why is because it's insane and stupid. And and like, if you keep seeing it, like you're probably going to look into it because I don't know about you. I don't really like just believe someone's a terrorist because someone says they are. Um, And especially a political candidate. (laughs) And, and the thing I just, I think back to is how old this this tactic feels like very famously decorated war hero max cleland democratic senator very popular senator for a good you know while he was in office uh he got railroaded by saxby chambliss in 2002 you know who ran this very unpatriotic un-american campaign accusing saxby chambliss of trying to help the terrorist win because he was not doing everything George W. Bush wanted him to do, and he won. He won that race. Saxby Chambliss beat Max Cleland on the Max Cleland decorated Vietnam War hero is actually helping the terrorists. And I think David Perdue was thinking, his team was thinking, this is going to be a layup. It's easy. George voters hate terrorism. (laughs) 
<laughs> and we'll just say John also is, is, is a terrorist and there we go we'll win and I think it just didn't work and so then they they go down these other rabbit holes and the the communist one is so desperate it's the same one they're trying on buying and it's just not working and it's 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 all these guys got and I I just find it crazy just how much the environment has changed because as I mentioned earlier, like Purdue, I really feel like six years ago, he had Georgia's pulse like dead on and ran a really good campaign and had a really good message and, you know, fought back a pretty good Democrat challenger in Michelle Nunn, who had a lot of affection among Democrats and a lot of affection potentially among Georgia voters because of how incredibly insanely popular her father, Senator Sam Nunn was. And so I, I really just find Purdue's flailing around fascinating um and i think it just comes back to your baffledness kyle is the fact that that's just it's it's all they got like purdue friend of donald trump is not going to campaign on donald trump is doing a bad job on the pandemic reelect me and i'll do a better job like it just doesn't work in some ways there i think 2014 is actually a somewhat helpful lesson i mean democratic candidates in 2014 did make the decision to step away from the president President Obama and try to create their own brand. And uh, I I think Obama's people believe that that was a strategic mistake and that it undercut enthusiasm among people who really liked Barack Obama to go out and vote for these Democratic Senate candidates who themselves were stepping away from Obama and saying, oh, this isn't going as great as, as we think it could, but if you send me to Washington, I'll help us get things back on track. Purdue's bet is, at minimum, I'm not going to undercut enthusiasm among the people that love Trump. I'm going to bear hug Trump and get all those people to come to the polls for me. And that's a coin flip as to whether or not that'll work. But, you know, I, I mean, you say that, like, Michelle Nunn may have been uniquely positioned to win a race in Georgia in a tough year for Democrats nationwide, but she stepped away from the president. And then ultimately she really, what happened is she got swallowed as a bunch of other democratic candidates did by just the national political mood. And I think that's, that's what's ultimately what's going to happen <laughs> here. And I guess it, in some ways it actually raises this question of like how powerless are candidates to national trends because, you know, Purdue could step away from the president. He could take the check abstration route, put out this big new plan to help people deal with COVID and could ultimately get swallowed up by the fact that this is a bad year for Republicans because at the very top and the national message that has come down is a failure on COVID and there's almost nothing they can do to change that reality. So I think what this comes back to, and this is, this is a great place to shift to the, uh, secret topic, which is the one that I realized we wanted to talk about, but we did not actually say in our outline, uh, which is the, what, where George is going. Um, because what I take away from 14 and 2020, let's assume Purdue loses or he like just barely hangs on, right? Like even closer than the Abrams race. I think what the fundamental lesson there would be is that you have to react to the national mood and place a bet, basically. Because 
you always place it back in politics that like you're picking the right side or the right time or the right year to run. And I think what the problem was for Jason Carter and Michelle Nunn, because they both ran away from Obama a lot, is I think they un- they they underestimated and misattributed what was going on. Because if you look now, kind of unquestionably, the things they would have campaigned on had they been more full-throated progressives bear-hugging Obama, the Affordable Care Act, Medicaid expansion... All, all you know just uh, like climate change all these things they would have been winners like they those those were good topics and i think there would have been more for them to gain for arguing for the right positions even if they were unpopular and harder for them to argue but like the ones that they genuinely full throatedly believed they would have been more successful and the evidence for that is one john ossoff is running the campaign i wished Jason Carter were growing and Michelle Nunn would have ran, right? Like, and Abrams ran that same type of campaign of just unabashedly progressive, like find those couple issues that conservatives would like and you like too and make sure you hit on them. But like on most things, like 90% of things, like you're running as if you were any other Democrat, you know, and, and the things you actually believe, which is always important in politics when you run on the things you actually believe. Whereas like Purdue, I think deep in his heart knows that like, COVID's going real bad and there's probably more we should do about it. And he would have gained a lot of points and steam, I think, by being willing to step out and push those things, especially because he is such a huge supporter of Donald Trump. If he would have found like the way to argue against these policy issues, which is entirely against the reason he's a senator, so he'd never do it. But if there had been some senator like Cory Gardner would have been greatly positioned in Colorado to do this, of just be like, no, like this administration sucks. They're doing a terrible job and we should we should do something different. Like in this year, I think it would have been effective because the tie is so negatively against uh, how Trump has handled this and the long-term tie is negatively against that. And so watching this campaign, watching how Georgia campaigns have developed, what do you think 2022 looks like? Now, I'll give you some base assumptions. Let's assume Biden wins, looks you know, knocking on wood, praying to deities that he does. But like, I think that will be a hard year for Democrats uh, regardless, just because it's it's very hard under these difficult circumstances for a um, any, any incumbent party to survive midterms. But you add a pandemic, you add the economic crisis, you add how divisive what happens in Washington will probably be. Like, I feel like it's a hard year for, for Democrats. But then you also have Kemp, who's incredibly unpopular now, has bungled the pandemic. And I imagine if there is a Biden administration, he will not be very friendly towards it. So how, how do you think that plays? Because I, I have a lot of thoughts here, but I want to hear yours first. One thing I want to touch on one thing that you said and then get to that question. Um, If I was Purdue, the way I would have done a two step to take some space from the president, but look active is to say, I'm David Purdue being a representative of Georgia and I'm in the room helping to negotiate deals with Democrats to get aid for the pandemic. And I, I would have taken this strategy sooner because I would have been David Perdue in the room securing aid for farmers and people living in Southwest Georgia who were impacted by Hurricane Michael. And how I would have gotten in front of being tied to the president negatively 
would have been to position myself as a representative of Georgia, who is effective at working with our president to bring home aid and improve things for people in Georgia. I think that's how I would have done that two-step. And I think because he chose to follow the president down all of the bad paths and not guide the president in a more positive direction is how he ends up in this place where he ultimately has no argument to make, or at least not a substantive positive one. I think looking forward to 2022, this I think potentially takes us back into our dead end of the failed first conversation is I think that if ultimately Purdue loses and if the verdict of this race is that the failure to address the reality people were living in and instead focusing on all the misinformation and negative attacks and and the things that really have nothing to do with the pandemic, if the verdict is that that strategy was a failure for Republicans, I actually think it'll be a little bit difficult for them to unravel that and be in a better place in 2022. I think they would they will get some assist from a national mood that then looks to national Democrats and wants to hold them accountable for whatever state the country is in. But the progress that Republicans have to make to win statewide in 2022 is to come back to some of those suburban voters who did who were who did not find their message in 2020 appealing and try to make some argument to them that they've changed and they are the responsible governing party and should continue to be given the keys to lead in Georgia. Keep in mind, this is a, this is a second term for Brian Kemp. He has to argue for that. So he has to argue to be given another chance to be the state's chief executive when largely when, when Democrats will argue that he failed the first time on the pandemic. And then this is either going to be Kelly Leffler or Doug Collins. Or Warnock. Or Warnock. But Warnock, I mean, Warnock will be in that race, but he'll be making a different argument as, as a Democratic incumbent. If it's a Republican incumbent there, then Kelly Leffler has gone all in on the max conservative strategy, and Doug Collins followed her in that direction. I think Doug could reel it in a little bit and sort of shift who he is, because I think his reputation was a little more firmly established. So I... So I think two things. I think Republicans will get an assist from the national mood wanting to hold Democrats accountable, but they're stuck in a really tough spot because the people that are going to be put forward as the party leaders for Republicans are Brian Kemp and either Kelly Leffler or Doug Collins, who have adopted the max conservative strategy that David Perdue adopted. And I, the thing that the thing that I just can't wrap my mind around is how these same people could transform themselves into something entirely new. I think that the problem is that you need a resurgence of the Casey Cagle wing to come back and make the arguments that were working in 2010 and 2012. But I, you know, I keep coming into that dead end where I, I ultimately think that strategy for Republicans just, they think it's not effective. They think it's not going to work, but if they're a failure in 2020 on the strategy that they've picked, I wonder if you'll see some internal battles and see a wing of the party that was formerly represented by Cagle and Deal make some kind of a resurgence. I don't know. Yeah, I think the principal difficulty in that is going to be a lot of those people are going to lose 
this election. Like there's a decent amount of state house reps who have long careers who have been the more moderate folks in the Atlanta suburbs who are going to lose or have really hard, tough races. So that's one thing. And then the other thing I think is what this race has shown me is that in a time like this where things are so incredibly bad that there's not a lot of room for this Republican Party in its current composition to give people what they want because when things are going better or on a good trajectory, Republicans are a lot more appealing because they basically can make an argument of like, hey, you're doing better now, your paycheck's bigger, you have a job again, we're not going to raise your taxes, we're going to keep you on that good trajectory, you know, good, you know, keep keep it up. But when, when things are bad, they have no solutions for you. And so if the policy landscape is still, in, you know, if America is still in a place where people want action, unless there's just some federal program that can become the boogeyman that the Affordable Care Act is and was, I, I think it's going to be a harder for them because I think they really think it would be a 2010 redux, and I don't know if it would be just because of the policy landscape they find themselves in and then just the political atmospherics that Kemp has, has adopted because like, I do not see Brian Kemp becoming a Casey Cagle-like figure uh, in two years. And he, he, even if he tried, it went, people wouldn't buy it. People's memories are, are not that short. And so I think barring him having a really ineffective opponent, which since Stacey Abrams is pretty likely to be his, his democratic opponent, I, I, I I think that race will be incredibly interesting and really say a lot about what the future of the state long-term is, is going to be like, uh, because those two arguments are in such polar opposites of each other. Like when deal and Carter rang against each other, there was a lot of agreement. I, there is no agreement between, uh, Brian Kemp and, and Stacey Abrams. And I, I think that will be really, really interesting to see. But I think a lot of it does depend on the national environment. But I, I, there is some agency both on Democrats' part of focusing on the policy issues that actually matter to people and on the Republicans' part about whether they want to be the crazy party or the you know, reasonable fiscal ultra-conservatives that they were uh, a decade ago. Real quick, one one piece that I think differentiates 2010 from 2022 is that the 2008 election ultimately ended up a lot being about the financial crisis and the state of the economy and Republican arguments in 2010 that Democrats had not made things better and we have a plan to make things better by lowering regulations and putting in conservative economic policy. That line of thinking, I disagree with it on a policy level, but you can see a lot of people saying, oh, that kind of makes sense. And we gave Barack Obama two years and things are not better. So maybe there needs to be a check in Washington on that presidency landslide for the Republicans in the House in 2010. In 2022, the thing that this election is about is the pandemic. And if Democrats have not fully gotten the pandemic under control by 2022, Republicans aren't going to then show up and start campaigning on things that are solutions to the pandemic that people will be like, oh yeah, that makes sense. If we put Republicans in control, we'll, we'll get to those solutions because the timing of the crisis was different in that it is clear in advance of the 2020 election that Republicans failed on the pandemic. And so it precludes them, I think, from making an, a 
persuasive argument in 2022 that they can come back and fix it when it when their failure was so obvious in advance of this election. And so that, I think, somewhat insulates Democrats from some of the swing back that you saw in 20, from 2008 to 2010, that you may not see that same thing again this time. And I just think that, I think that Republicans have done lasting damage to their brand in four years of Trump's politics. And I, you know... I kind of felt that they had done that kind of damage in, in 2008 in with the Iraq war and the financial crisis. And I ended up ultimately being wrong about that. I don't know this, this feels deeper and more structural in a way that it's harder for me to outline how they turn it around until there's a whole bunch of new people that are talking about different things. Well, hopefully in 2022, we will not replay this clip and say, Oh, (laughs) you were wrong. Uh, so we we will find out luke i think we salvaged it i think we salvaged the show managed to put one together i like this version more than the first one so that you know that's the bare minimum we can do listeners you you can decide um but if you're still with us then maybe you think you we we salvaged it also um but yeah well i had fun i'm less anxious so you know i worked i worked (laughs) some stuff out on this on this podcast Oh, well, we are going to leave it there. Luke, this is it before the election. We're uh, not going to talk again, at least on the podcast, until after the election. This will be our final word. So I guess to you, I say good luck in the final days of of your state house race with Jonathan Wallace. Uh, Listeners, if you did not catch the conversation with Jonathan that I had uh, earlier this week, look for that in your podcast feeds. Um, And, and, you know, one one thing I wanted to say real quick is... um, I've been working really hard on this campaign season. I, I, I imagine a lot of people listening to the show have been as well, or they're following it. And one thing, one thing I, I took away from listening to majority 54, which is Jason Kander's really excellent podcast, his uh, episode, how we win the final days that came out a couple days ago really struck me. And I think is a smart thing to do. So I, I've been doing it and I'm encouraging others to as well Is just like, I don't know about you. I am incredibly anxious about uh, the races I'm involved in, democracy, <laughs> the uh, continuing of the American experiment and democracy <laughs> and a republic. And that's very hard. Um, and so the the one thing that he recommended that I think is great, and I, I recommend you just listen to him. So I'll give a short version, but just to hold on to like the excitement and the hope that you're ho- hopefully feeling now. I definitely have a lot of hope right now and just try to hold on to that and relish it because we don't really know like what's going to happen on Tuesday slash Wednesday slash Thursday slash eventually when we actually know the outcome of this election and just in the moments where we can feel that everything is possible that 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 is a uh, unique feeling and should should definitely hold on to that um while while you can and have it carry you forward regardless of the result and I I definitely will be doing that and um, just thought I would pass that advice along. Luke, I think that is a good way to close it. So we are signing off for the pre-election portion of, of 2020 Peach Pod. Thanks for doing it with me, Luke. Listeners, thanks for, for coming along for the ride. Uh, happy to be here and go vote if you haven't. Why are you listening to the show if you haven't voted? Vote. Yes, vote. Tuesday. You have until... 7. You have until 7 p.m. on Tuesday. Go vote. We'll talk to you after the election. 
That's our show for today. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod. Thanks as always to our fantastic interns, Olivia Bauer, Peyton Childers, and Kelly Dobso for their help researching this episode. Until next time, take care, y'all. 